What a great song to lead into our time of uh, looking at God's Word more closely this morning. So we think about God and His deliverance. I encourage you to turn to Psalm 40. Psalm chapter 40. We're going to be looking at uh, verses, we're going to look at the whole chapter and excited about uh, this psalm and our ability to look through this together. This is a psalm uh, that I have referenced several times over the last a few months, last six months, Psalm 40, verse 5 in particular. I heard, uh, I listened to Blake's message while I was gone and uh, heard him reference Psalm 40, verse 5. And I'm like, oh, hey, careful, Blake, don't, don't say too much because I'm going to be uh, preaching. On, then I realized uh, that I had uh, heard someone else teach on this, and that's where I got the idea in the first place. And then the, the very title this morning, a psalm from e- for Eeyore, I, uh, I got that from my friend Doug Van Meter, so um, I'm kind of stealing some things this morning. But again, we're kind of looking at some passages that are, I think, just helpful passages for us to think about as we close our study in the Pentateuch and look forward to beginning Galatians here, Lord willing, in August. And this is just a psalm that I've thought a lot about over the last few months and hope that it is encouraging for you today as well. So if you're able to, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word together, Psalm 40, I'm going to begin here and reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance, In the great congregation, behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. 
As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your special grace on us today as we look at these verses and think through how to, to rightly worship you and be in relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the words pessimist and optimist uh, do not occur in the Bible, at least not in the English Standard Version translation. Uh, we don't see that those two words occur. Uh, but we do sometimes see some characteristics that we associate with pessimists and with optimists. And we, we see those, those terms used, and maybe some heart attitudes that people who fit into one of those two groups might struggle with. Uh, you know the word optimist generally refers to a person who looks on the positive side of things, the, the bright side of life. The, the pessimist is the person who sometimes looks on the more negative side of things. Or as, as one person put it, an optimist is the one who proclaims, we live in the greatest of all possible worlds. And the pessimist is the one who says, yeah, I know. You'll get it later. Um, first service didn't get it either, and I was just, I got hot and sweat. I, like, I don't know what to do. It's a joke, okay? I was reading an article a few, about an article, a study that was done a few years ago, and the, uh, the, some researchers found that pessimists, this is a study in the UK, pessimists tend to live longer than optimists. And we, uh, they kind of gave some reasons for that. Maybe it's because of pessimists taking better care of themselves. They, they think something might be wrong, so they, they go to the doctor. The optimist doesn't. And it's kind of an interesting study. I was thinking, and, and this kind of is the, the strange part to me, you know, what do you do with that information? If you are a person who hears that study, that a, a pessimist lives longer than an optimist, and you say, well, that's good news for me, that mean because I'm a pessimist, apparently you're not pessimistic enough. But if you say, well, that's, that's bad news, I'm not pessimistic enough, that means you are pessimistic enough, which means as soon as you realize that, you'll be an optimist and you'll be in trouble again. I don't know. I don't know what to do with that study. But a person like me is, is a person who has at times struggled uh, with, with pessimism. In fact, when I was a, a child, my family referred to me as, as Eeyore sometimes. You know, Tigger was kind of the fun, cool figure from Winnie the Pooh, but that's not what my parents called me. They called me Eeyore. You know, Eeyore is the character in Winnie the Pooh who whenever Pooh comes up to Eeyore, he says, lovely day, isn't it? And Eeyore replies, wish I could say that I, it was, but I can't. You know, just kind of that negative view. That is something that I've, I've struggled with in life, that pessimistic, sometimes a negative view on how things are. Now, why, why is that a problem? As we look at Scripture, it's hard to argue that pessimism isn't at its root sinful. It's hard to argue that it's, it's not sinful or there aren't certainly sinful components of it. 
Let me just read a couple passages for you. And as we read these passages, I think you'll agree with me. It's, it's hard to believe that these passages, passages are true and simultaneously have a negative view of the world and of life. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're in Christ Jesus, you're no longer at war with God. There's no condemnation for you. It's hard to say, yeah, I believe that's true, but life is terrible, right? He goes on, Paul goes on in Romans 8, and he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And he talks about suffering and and the bad things that, that happen. And he talks about how suffering is part of God's God's plan because we're, we're heirs with Christ and we, we suffer with Christ. And then he says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the, the hard circumstances that we go through right now, it's not that they're not hard, but in terms of, of magnitude, they're not worth comparing to the, the the magnitude of sorrow is not worth comparing to the magnitude of joy and eternity with God and his glory. Then he goes on and says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now if you believe that that's true, it's hard to believe that life is bad. Or we think about Revelation 21, as, as all of Scripture comes to a close, we, we see how the story is going to end. And John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Listen to what it says. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's our future. Now, that's how the story ends. How can we be pessimistic now? I was talking to a friend one time and I said, well, sure, I'm, I'm optimistic about the long term, but in the short term, things are terrible, right? But you know what? That's also not an attitude that fits with the biblical data, with what God tells us. In fact, here in Psalm 40, verse 5, here in Psalm 40, but particularly in verse 5, we we encounter a verse that won't let us think like that. A verse that's really been a, a a powerful antidote to my sometimes pessimistic soul. We see here some things about how to respond when confronted with hard things in our our past, our present, or our future. As we encounter 
the reality that, that life can be hard, that bad things can happen, how should we think about that? What we're going to see is that biblically, we can't just be these, these doughy-eyed optimists, these, these Pollyannas who just say, oh, nothing's bad, everything's good, that's, that's not a biblical way to respond, but neither is it biblical for us to, to face the, the past or the present or the future with, with despair. Here's the, the, the main thing that I want us to see and grasp as we look at this passage this morning. As I think, or excuse me, to think about life rightly, I must first be overwhelmed by truths about the greatness and glory of my God and Deliverer, Jesus Christ. So in other words, for for me to process life correctly, for me to think about the past and for me to think about the present and for me to think about the future correctly, for me to to understand rightly how to, to view events that have taken place in my life and will take place in my life and are taking place right now, for me to to process that correctly. It doesn't mean that I ignore evil. It doesn't mean I say, well, the things that happened in the past, they weren't bad. I just, I overreacted. I, I, don't, I don't have some sort of naive optimism about things that happened in the past. I don't have some naive optimism about things that are going to happen in the future, but neither as I focus on the past or the future do I, I think about those things outside the context of who God is. For me to process life rightly I, I first, what hap- needs to happen to me first is I need to be overwhelmed by some things. Uh, God wants me to be overwhelmed by some truths about his greatness and his glory, the greatness and the glory of my God and my great deliverer, Jesus Christ. That needs to happen to me first, and then I can look rightly at the past, at the present, at the future. So we're going to think about that. We're going to think about that in context of the past. We're going to think about that in context of the future. We're going to spend more time talking about the past, and then some of those things we talk about will apply to the verses that deal with the, the future and the present. But let's first of all talk about the past, verses 1 through 10. When I think about my past, this is the thing I want us to think about together. When I think about my past, I respond with praise as I'm overwhelmed by the reality of God's deliverance. When I think about my past, we're going to see this in verses 1 through 10, I need to respond with praise as I'm overwhelmed by the reality of God's deliverance. Now again, I'm not ignoring bad things that have happened, but I'm also not focusing on the evil itself. There is deliverance, there's deliverance from something, but I'm thinking about God and his character. Now here's, there's kind of four sections of these first 10 verses, and, and the psalmist is describing his past, and he's describing his reaction to his past. And it says as we begin here that this is a, a psalm of David. It's, it's uh, David writing these things that have taken place in his life and he's, he's thinking about them. Now, David had a past. He'd had some rough things take place in his life, to put it mildly, right? It seems that at times in his life he was marginalized by his family. Remember there's that time where where Samuel tells Jesse, David's father, hey, gather your sons. And so Jesse gathers seven of David's brothers. He brings him to Samuel, but he doesn't even, even think to bring David. 
David was marginalized by his brothers. He appears to his brothers as they're on the battlefield, and they say, hey, aren't you supposed to be watching the sheep? He's a person who, this doesn't mean it wasn't loved by his family, but certainly not respected the way that perhaps he would have liked to have been respected by his father and brothers. He was a person who faced a lot of external problems. Saul wanted to kill him. Saul, his king, and then Saul, his father-in-law, wanted to destroy him. Saul sent him on, mes- on missions, hoping that he would die. And when he didn't die, Saul took matters into his own hands and tried to kill him. David was betrayed by family members. He was betrayed by close friends. He had things, external forces working against him that were, were terrible. David encountered terrible things in life. He suffered trauma. He saw things on the battlefield. He committed atrocities. He was a, a person who committed adultery. He had a man murdered. David saw terrible things take place in his life. He lost children. He lost an infant. He lost grown children. He had a son rape his daughter, his son's half-sister. Whenever David was fleeing from his son Absalom, Shimei came out, and it says in Second Samuel that he threw stones at David as he left, and he cursed David, and he said some things to David that weren't true, but they had some truth in them. As, as David is leaving, Shimei curses him. He says, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord, Yahweh, has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." You can imagine as David is at the, the darkest point, of, one of the darkest points of his life, that curse coming down upon him and the despondency that he might feel. Now, the point is, David, as he's going to talk about his past, could have dwelled on some terrible things. And in other psalms, by the way, it's not, it's not bad to talk about the bad things. In other psalms, David does kind of deal with, with some of the, the, the terrible things that have happened in a different way. But, but always there's a dominant theme. And the dominant theme, this is, this is very interesting, the, the dominant theme isn't the evil. Although it's there. He's not pretending like the evil isn't there. That's, that's not the right response. But the dominant theme is God and his deliverance, right? Listen to what David says. He's talking about the past, and there's all these things he could have said about the past. And as he talks about the past, he says, this is verse 1, I waited patiently, or another way to translate that would be, I waited and waited. I think that carries the idea a little bit more. There's, there's this extended period of waiting, and it's, it's, it's a hard time. I waited and waited for the Lord, and and he inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. In other words, David was in a terrible place, this place of death. And from this place of death and darkness, God draws him up. He's out of the miry bog. He sets his feet upon a a firm foundation, upon a rock, making my steps secure. He he didn't just do that, but he, he gave him the ability to praise. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. 
There's a God-centered nature of what the psalmist communicates as he describes God's deliverance. That's what we see in the, the first stanza. Now, there's, there's three more stanzas that take place in this first section. Look at what he says next. So he's, he's talked about his deliverance, and now he, he talks about God's deliverance in a in more expansive terms. Verses 4 and 5. He talks about the reality of God's deliverance. This this is what happened. He says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after lies. In other words, the person is blessed who doesn't follow after a wrong perception of life and a wrong perception of reality. And then he comes to verse 5, and as I mentioned before, verse 5 has been a verse that I've been meditating on a lot over the last six months or so, and I would encourage you to, to memorize this verse, to meditate on this, if this is anything that you struggle with at times. Listen to what the psalmist says. He says, you've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous thoughts and deeds toward us. Your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us, none can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, but what? They're more than can be told. A couple things to notice here. First of all, notice the deeds and thoughts. There's, they're, they're, they're wondrous. He, he's done wondrous things for the psalmist. This is like what we see in Ephesians chapter 1 as Paul begins this epistle. He starts talking about how God should be blessed. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In other words, Paul says as he begins, he says, look, God has done good, kind things toward you, and he should be blessed. He planned to do things for you in eternity past. He's brought you into relationship with him through the blood of his son, Jesus. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 1, he has plans to give you an eternal inheritance. God's deeds toward us are good and wondrous. But it's not just his deeds. It's, it's his very thoughts. You know, sometimes someone might do something nice for you or, or maybe put it this way, sometimes you might do something nice for someone else, but, um, but you resent it a little bit, you know. You dish out the ice cream, and there is your, uh, your beautiful spouse, and you think, okay, the right thing to do is to give the bigger bowl of ice cream, and you do it. You do this wondrous thing, but your thoughts aren't that great about it. Like, Man, I wish I'd made them more even, or I'm coming back for a second scoop later, right? But that's not how God operates, God's God's deeds toward us are wondrous, and his thoughts towards us are wondrous as well. His his thoughts towards us are thoughts of of perfect love and grace and mercy. And not only this, what else do we see? It's not just that he has these deeds and thoughts to us that are wondrous, but it says that you've you've multiplied them. So there's here's some, and then it's it's double, and then it's double, and it's multiplied, it's multiplied. It's it's boundless in terms of the extent of the wondrous deeds and thoughts that God has toward us. God's goodness toward us 
is, is beyond our ability to comprehend because we don't know the evil from which we've been rescued and we don't know the extent of the goodness that God has planned for us. But the psalmist encourages, look, God has multiplied. It's, it's, it's wondrous thoughts and deeds multiplied. And then he says, it's God-centered. None can compare it with you. As he's talking about his past, there have been wicked people in his past. He has been a wicked person in his past. And we'll see he continues to be a wicked person, struggle with sin. But the amazing thing is, God in his greatness, when it says none can compare with you, what, what I think he's saying is no one compare with you no one can compare with you in terms of, of your goodness, but it's also true that no one can compare with you in terms of, of just magnitude of, of effect. So God's goodness is greater than the evil of the most evil person we can possibly imagine. God's goodness is infinitely greater than the greatness of any evil we can imagine. So as, what does that mean? As the psalmist thinks about the past over here, Here's here's the past. Here's all the bad people and all the bad things that have happened. It's not that those things aren't bad. They truly are evil and against the glory of God. And some of you have gone through those things. But here's what the psalmist says. The greatness of our God dominates my thoughts as I'm overwhelmed by his wondrous deeds and his thoughts even in the past with all its, its garbage and junk and wickedness. I'm overwhelmed by the reality of, of God's deliverance in that. Just pause and contemplate on that, right? This verse. He says, I, I, will, I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they're more than can be told. And we've talked about this before. You've heard me talk about Psalm 40, verse 5. It means that I could start right now and I could say, let me just talk to you about the great things that God has done and it could consume the rest of the sermon and then we could go on next week and next week and next week. I could have like my sermon series for the rest of my life just on God's wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us and then we could all die in eternity and keep going and never reach the end. Now, if that's true, what does that mean about my speech and the things that come out of my mouth? I don't think it's wrong to talk about hard, negative things. We, we need to do that. But what it means is that the dominant theme of my speech needs to be on, on God and his greatness. And so often, my speech is dominated by this bad thing happened and kind of upset about this situation. This is the kind of thing that's stressing me out. And if a person comes to me and, and has a conversation and then walks away and does that over a period of time, what would they be able to say about my speech? Would they say, you know what, Daniel's, Daniel's speech is dominated by a theme, and that is that God is great and his deeds towards us are, are wondrous and his thoughts towards us are wondrous. Would that be what people walk away from a relationship with me convinced of? It should be. So he's talked about, so we're here, we're talking about the past. When I think about the past, I need you to respond with praise. I'm overwhelmed by the reality of God's deliverance. He describes here 
what's happened in the past, verses 1 through 3. He talks in verses 4 and 5 about the, the reality of God's deliverance. Then in verses 6 through 8, he talks about the source of God's deliverance. Now, this, this is another amazing part of the psalm, and I, I wish we had more time to, to spend here, but, but look at what he writes. So he's talking about the source of, his, of God's deliverance. So he's, he's talking about God delivered me, and then, then he says this in verse 6, In sacrifice and offering you've not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Now, what is, what is this talking about? This is David writing about a, a future king and deliverer. The writer, sometimes as David writes, we, we see David writing about himself. We see these things that he writes about himself fulfilled in a, with a, a greater David, with, with Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews quotes these verses in Psalm 40 in Hebrews chapter 10. The writer of, of Hebrews in chapter 10 uh, talks about Christ, and it says Christ is the one who says in verse 7, this is Hebrews 10, 7, Christ is the one who's speaking in Psalm 40, saying, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, let me stop there. Uh, what, is, what does that mean? The scroll of the book, I believe, is talking about that book we see described in Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 14. Remember the, the, the scroll that the king is to, to write in? The, Moses said there's going to be a coming king and, and he's going to, to reign perfectly and there's all the kings of Israel to have this, this scroll and they're, they're to say, we're going to walk in obedience to this, this scroll. So what David is saying here in Psalm 40 is that there's a, a coming David and there's a recognition, burnt offering and sin offering aren't enough. In other words, burnt offering and sin offering can't fully deliver me. It's a picture of deliverance, but it's not fullness of deliverance. Uh, we need more. And what David is saying here in Psalm 40, and Hebrews 10 confirms this, he's saying there's going to be a coming king, and this coming king is, is going to say, look, I'm the king. I'm the one of whom it was written about. I've, I've come to fulfill your, your will. I'm going to walk in perfect obedience. So how does God deliver us? The psalmist is saying God delivers us through this, this coming future king who obeys God's will perfectly. And then, verses 9 and 10, here in Psalm 40, describe the response. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I've, I've not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I haven't hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've, I've spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Here, the, the lens through which the psalmist is viewing the past causes him to be overwhelmed as he thinks about God's gracious deliverance. And that's the test for you and for me. As people hear me talk about my circumstances, what do they hear me say? What do they hear you say? Is your speech dominated with complaints about your past or your present, or is it dominated by proclaiming the wondrous deeds of God? The psalmist here says, look, I, I don't hide these things within my heart. I speak of them. I speak of your faithfulness. I speak of your salvation. I don't conceal your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. 
as you and I, those of us who are believers, talk about our past and even about horrific things that have taken place in our past, can, can people say, I hear, I hear them speak of God's greatness and deliverance in the midst of those? Or even just in the mundane details of life, as we talk about our days, as we talk about relationships, as we talk about our kids, as we talk about our parents, is our speech characterized by complaint? Man, I can't believe how, man, the kids were terrible today, or my parents were terrible today, or my siblings were terrible today, or my friends were terrible today, or this was terrible today. Or is our speech dominated by, you know what, today, as I think about the past day, God, God was great. God is great, a great deliverer, a God who allowed me to have health today to get out of bed, a God who allowed me to have the health today to to process things mentally, a God who would sustain me in my ability to, to walk in obedience to him, a God who proved himself faithful even when I was faithless today. Again, this isn't some sort of naive optimism. It's, it's a God-centered view of reality. Second thing I want to think about is this, uh, verses 11 through 17. So that's when I think about my past. Now, when I think about my present and, and my future, that's what the psalmist turns his attention to next. When I think about my present and my future, how do I respond? I respond with confident trust as I'm overwhelmed by the promise of God's deliverance. When I think about my present, when I think about the things that I have going on today, when I think about the reality of relationships that aren't where I want them to be, when I think about the, just the stress of work or the stress of home or, or all of these, these realities that just, just seem to weigh down upon me, I don't, I don't pretend like those things aren't there but neither do I respond with a, a man-centered defeatism. I say, look, I have confident trust. Why? Because I'm overwhelmed as I think about the promise of God's deliverance. And here's, here's how the psalmist describes this. Again, three stanzas here. And the first stanza, the first section, verses 11 through 13, we see... The, the danger that's in the present because of sin, because of our, our own sin. The psalmist says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Isn't that a, a beautiful way to, to put it? You won't restrain your mercy from me. Your faithfulness, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And then he talks about evil in verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. You know, maybe he's talking about this foreign enemy or maybe this this jerk of a friend, but no, he's, he's talking about himself when he talks about this evil. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. He, he describes this circumstance in which he's just feeling overwhelmed as he considers his, his own sin. So he's responding to his sin, not just by pretending his sin doesn't exist or, or pretending that, 
he hasn't done anything wrong or having just this, this again, man-centered view of his own ability to conquer his sin, but neither does he believe that his sin will defeat him. He recognizes the overwhelming nature of it, but look what he says. He says, my, my iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. But then what is this trust in? It's in God. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. As we encounter our present struggle with sin, as we think about our future struggle with sin, as we realize that our iniquities are more in number than the hair on our head, we don't say, well, I'm just going to try harder. We don't say, well, I've, I've sinned. I guess there's nothing I can do. That's just how I am. We cry out to God, God, I, I have confident trust in your deliverance. We'll see that in just in a moment. But look at verses 14 and 15. In verses 14 and 15, now we see external dangers. So first there's just the, the danger of our own heart. Now we, now we see the, the danger outside. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. There are, there are people, not just in David's past, but in his present, who want bad things for him. Some who tell him to his face, some who work behind his back, and how does he respond again with trust in the Lord? Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. There are people in David's life, there are people in our lives who are happy when bad things happen to us. The response is not a response of pessimism. The response is not a, well, I'm just not going to think about it. The response is, I'm going to think about God and his goodness. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. And the so-, so it's, again, people who are excited about bad things happening. And then the, the reason he can respond that way is in verses 16 and 17. And in verses 16 and 17, we see the gospel in Psalm 40. But may all who seek you, God, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord, great is Yahweh. So what does he think about as he thinks about the present, as he thinks about the future, as he thinks about his own sin, as he thinks about the sin of others and those who want to destroy him? He says, look, I, I have confident trust in God's deliverance. God is going to deal with this. And then he says, verse 17, as for me, this is the gospel again, as for me, I am poor and needy. What the pessimist often gets right is their own inadequacies, right? I, I'm poor and needy. God, in this present circumstance, I don't have the ability in myself to deal with this. I don't have the ability to allow me to be in relationship with you. I don't have the ability to deal with the scoffers. I don't have the ability to deal with the people who hate me. I don't have the ability to cross the finish line and enter into your presence. There's, there's no hope in my past. There's no hope in my present. There's no hope in my future in and of myself. I'm poor and needy, says the psalmist. But what? the Lord takes thought for me. You're my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. 
God, my hope is not in myself, but, but it's in you. My total confidence and trust is in you and in your deliverance. And we see that Psalm 40 grounds that deliverance in this future Messiah. It's, it's in Jesus. Romans 8 describes the hope that we have. He says, if, if this is 825, but hope, but if hope, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And then he goes on in verse 28 of Romans 8. We know, and again, this is a, this is a God-fueled joy, not a, not a man-centered pessimism or a man-centered optimism. We know that for those who love, the, love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What do we see there? We see that God, in his goodness, before the beginning of time, had a plan for us. Now he's bringing that that plan to fruition in our present, and he's going to continue to work toward it in our future. It's hard not to be overwhelmed at times by the hard circumstances, by the pain. Eeyore is not just a a funny Disney character for some of us. Uh, For some of us, it's a a ever present temptation to not think rightly about the world in which we live. The right response to the world is not to say, well, evil doesn't exist, or hard things haven't happened, or hard things aren't going to happen, or everything is good, and our relationships are all sweet and awesome. The right response is to look at the totality of of our life and say, okay, I'm I'm going to view this, and the first thing, before I think about the bad, before I think about anything else, before I think about me, before I think about others, I'm first going to think about God. And I'm going to be overwhelmed by my thoughts about Him and His goodness and His deliverance and His plans for me in the past, the present, and the future. Brothers and sisters, God would not have us view our circumstances negatively. He desires us to be overwhelmed by his goodness toward us. He doesn't want us to be like the child who receives good thing after good thing, candy after treat, after nice thing after good thing, and says, okay, well, well, what now? What have you done for me lately? He desires us to be his his children who receive the fullness of joy from him, who receive his, his son and his love and his eternal protection of us. And he wants us to be consumed with joy in him. For the psalmist, there's a God-centered hope, both as he considers the past, as he considers the future. The, for, the, for the psalmist, the, the cup isn't half full or half empty. It's overflowing with the goodness of God. And in him, there is joy forevermore. How do I combat the sin of looking at reality wrongly. Well, to think about life rightly, I first must be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by truths about my great God and deliverer, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray that you would help those of us who are struggling this morning with great sorrow, with, with hurt, or just, just a general feeling of, of not responding rightly to, to life. Give us joy in you. Help us today to think about you and your love for us and your kindness toward us, your wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us. And may we respond with the psalmist today, none can compare with you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.